Hello, this is Dr. David Friedman, host of To Your Good Health Radio. If you're a regular listener of the show, you're no stranger to my ongoing frustration regarding all the myths, fads, and pure nonsense out there when it comes to our food. One month eggs are good for you, and the next month they're bad, and grains used to help lower our blood sugar. Now we're told avoid grains because they spike our blood sugar, and for decades research showed beans protect us from disease, and now we're told, nope, they contain lectins, which cause disease, and coffee was bad, now it's considered good. Here to help us break through all the confusion, we have Dr. David Katz. His new book, which he co-wrote with Mark Bittman, is called How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. If you need help deciphering all the culinary conundrum, don't go anywhere. It all starts now. It's To Your Good Health Radio with number one best-selling author and renowned wellness expert, Dr. David Friedman, changing lives just for the health of it. Our next guest is a preventative medicine specialist and globally recognized authority on lifestyle medicine. He's the founding director of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and founder of the nonprofit True Health Initiative. He's been featured in most major magazines and newspapers and has appeared widely on radio and television. In addition, he served as a regular medical contributor for Good Morning America and ABC News. He's a sought-after keynote speaker, and he's lectured at major universities and conferences throughout the world. In addition, he's the author of 17 books, including his latest, How to Eat, which he co-wrote with Mark Bittman. Welcome back to the show, Dr. David Katz. David, thanks so much. Great to be with you. Yeah, it's so great to have you back with us. Uh, you've written so many books. Share with us what inspired you to write How to Eat. Well, you know, first of all, I, I'm privileged to have this relationship with Mark Bittman, who knows so much about food production and, and locally sourcing food and sustainable agriculture and sort of, you know, the big picture impacts. And uh, the, our correspondence developed, our friendship developed, and we wound up doing two pieces together for New York Magazine. And, and the first one they called the last conversation you'll ever need to have about diet and health or something like that. And of course, you know, no sooner had they called it the last conversation than of course it, it went viral. It was one of the most popular articles they ever ran. So there had to be a sequel, a sequel to the last conversation. So we did two of these and they, you know, they, they were really fun. I mean, we did it. It was sort of a back and forth banter Q and a, what about this? Is yogurt good for me? How many can I eat? What about cheese? What about beans? What about grains? Is it true what they say? And, um, we thought, well, you know, these, it was fun to write. Uh, they were extremely popular and we've got more to say. So we proposed the book to our publisher and they said, we love it. And the rest is history. So the book is written in that same style, David, and, and that's unique. So this is my 18th book, actually, and I, I've never written a book like this before. It's a conversation, and, and what's re- it, it covers everything. You know, it, it, it's got all of the information from the big picture about dietary patterns to the details, like, you know, what about coffee and chocolate and eggs and milk and butter and extra virgin olive oil and coconut oil and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole thing feels like you're, you're pulling up a chair to a coffee table, you know, and, and Mark and I are just sort of kicking questions back and forth at one another and, and you're there in the conversation. So it, it's fun. I, I really like it. 
That's great. When it comes to, you know, food politics, the opinions are kind of a diverse as Republicans versus Democrats. You got the vegan and plant-based diet advocates saying we should stay away from animals. It's the leading cause of disease. And the keto and paleo diet expert, uh, experts saying, hey, eat a lot of animal protein. It's healthy. What's your opinion from what you found? Is there one or is it kind of a bipartisan middle line there? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, I, I'm an anti-ideologue. Um, uh-huh. I always say epidemiology before ideology. Right. And, and so I don't fall neatly into, you know, any of the extremes or any particular camp. I follow the evidence where it leads. But the way you just, um, you know, kind of cre- made, made those two opposing corners, I, I would say the evidence greatly favors one over the other. So, um, massive amounts of highly confluent evidence that we should be moving in the direction of plant predominant diets, massively better for human health, massively better for the planet, massively kinder and gentler to our fellow species. So I, there really isn't much debate if you look at the big picture there. And I'm not a fan of, of keto. Uh, you know, the idea that you could do a paleo diet would be good for you. Okay, but you know you got to be serious about it. Um, a paleo diet does not mean eating bacon or pepperoni; it means eating venison. So you know if you've got lots of wild plants in your diet and a bow and arrow for the hunting that you do, okay, fine. Otherwise, you're just you know you're sort of flying the paleo banner as an excuse to eat processed meat that didn't exist in the Stone Age. So you know what Mark and I are both um, very centrist. I mean, first of all, we think. It's important to view food as a source of pleasure. And, you know, Mark's a, and he wrote How to Cook Everything. Um, he's a great cook. He's a foodie. Um, we care about how food is produced. We care about impacts on the land, the environment. Uh, we care about other creatures. Um, and, you know, we, we followed the evidence where it led. And we, we, we really didn't stake out an extreme position. But we're also not shy about what's true. And it, right. it's simply true, if you look at the evidence in the aggregate, that some people are right and some people are wrong, and moving more in the direction of plant-predominant diets is a choice yeah. we no longer have. You know, we really, for the sake of the planet, if nothing else, we really have to do that now. Yeah, I know with plant-based, grains used to be considered healthy, and you got the paleo advocates saying, you know, it's it's not heart-healthy. It doesn't help reduce the colon risk and cholesterol like we thought before. Uh, what, what's the truth when it comes to grain? I mean, does it help blood sugar and cause heart disease and contribute to cancer, or is it good for us? Good for us, if it's whole grain. And bad for us if it's refined grain. And that, you know, that, that's one of the reasons, David, why you can get these competing answers. So, you know, what about grain? Well, you know, if you do a study of highly refined grain because you, you want to show that it's harmful, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, high glycemic load, bad effects on blood sugar, bad effects on insulin lipids, absolutely true. On the other hand, whole grains um, are consistently associated in intervention studies, in mechanistic studies, in randomized trials, and in long-term observational epidemiology with reduced risk of obesity, diabetes, insulin resistance, heart disease, and cancer. Cancer is harder just because of the timeline. So, I mean, you mentioned, for example, grains or fiber and, say, colon cancer. Um, you know, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds here, but the, the studies that I've read on that topic have, you know, essentially, rather than say, look, we're going to follow people for 30 years, look at different grain intake and see who does or do, doesn't develop colon cancer. Those are hard studies to run. What, what people have done to try and, you know, get a handle 
on the information in a shorter period of time is pick a higher risk group. So studies of people, for example, who have polyps in their colon on colonoscopy and then randomly assigned to eat more or less fiber. And those studies have failed to show a beneficial effect of fiber. But my answer is, well, probably too little too late. Once you're already making polyps, the injury to the colon over many years has already occurred and fiber isn't going to undo that damage. So, you know, again, overall, if you look across the expanse of many sources of evidence, it's very, very clear that whole grain intake is associated with good health outcomes across the board. The the other thing, and I, I do think this is very important, David, because randomized control trials are very valuable, but they can't answer every question. So they're never going to answer, for example, what are the dietary patterns that are associated with longevity and vitality across many generations? I mean, you can't do a multi-generational randomized control trial, but you can look at populations like the blue zones and answer that question. And interestingly, there are, you know, to date, five different blue zone populations around the world where people routinely live to 100, don't get chronic disease. Um, whole grains are a staple in all five of them. They're very diverse, uh, but they have some important commonalities, and whole grains is one of them. And beans are also a part of that, which kind of debunks the whole lectins are bad for you. These people live into 100 uh, years old healthy. Exactly right. And in fact, so Dan Butner, you know, who's done the work on the Blue Zones and, and written those books, uh, it, when Dan is, is prioritizing the commonalities, he puts beans at the very top of the list. And exactly right. So, you know, it, it's sort of silly to say eating lectins is bad for you when lectins occur in foods that are the best for you. So, you know, that would be a little bit like saying oxygen is toxic, which, of course, in fact, it is. And it, it's in the atmosphere. So hold your breath. You know, I mean, that would be pretty bad advice. Same thing here. If the net effect of breathing is better for your health and life than not breathing, then go ahead and breathe. And you can say, well, it's interesting that, you know, if you have too much oxygen, it's bad for you, but it's also part of a formula essential for life. I'd say it's much the same with lectins. Maybe if you ate highly concentrated doses of some lectins, um, you know, they'd have a toxic effect. But if the net effect of eating the foods they're found naturally in is to promote health, that matters more. And the other thing is, and you know, I, I really I thought the, the the book, The Plant Paradox, was very misguided. I, I did a literature search of my own to see, okay, you know, th- this book seems completely theoretical. I mean, here are these compounds in beans and lentils and whole grains and nuts and seeds and in some vegetables and fruits and also, by the way, in meat and dairy. I mean, if you're going to avoid lectins, there's not much left to eat. So what does the literature say about these compounds? And, and I found, okay, yeah, you can find a few papers that say theoretical potential for adverse health effects. But for every one of those papers I found, I found a few that said theoretical potential for health benefit. You know, th- th- these proteins actually may bind to um, cancer cells in a way that impairs their ability to replicate. There may be health advantages of certain lectins. Uh, anyway, I, I, I think it was one of those things that was basically just an opportunity to say, hey, let, let, me, let me offer a completely new version of good nutrition because that's the, that's the right way to make the bestseller list. <clears throat> you know, tell people everything they knew up until yesterday was wrong. 
But I, I completely disagree with the lectin hypothesis. Yeah, we're on the same page there, especially since the person who scared us all about this poison has an antidote called the lectin shield that we can buy. Yeah, a little, yeah, too, right. little, yeah, a little too convenient. Yeah, you follow the money. A little too convenient, exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Tell us about wine. I know one's considered heart healthy. Even the American Heart Association recommended one to two glasses of wine every day. Now there's these new studies showing having wine every day is not good for us and may actually contribute to disease. Does wine get the Dr. Cat seal of approval or should we stay clear? Well, both really. Um, and, and so the, the big study that captured everybody's attention was published in the Lancet and it, it led to headlines all around the world that, okay, everything we'd heard about wine and, you know, moderate alcohol being good for us is wrong. The only safe level is zero. And it was a distortion because this, this study, essentially it's an ecological study. In other words, it looks at the fate of populations. So it looked across countries and asked the question, you know, what level of alcohol intake in a population is associated with the least net harm? Well, it's fairly obvious before you even do any science that the answer is going to be zero because, you know, if nobody drinks, then alcohol can't hurt anybody. And if anybody in the population drinks, there's always the chance that somebody is going to drink and drive and somebody is going to become an alcoholic. And that's pretty much what the study showed. But it it wasn't a study about what happens in individuals. So in other words, you know, let's say you love good wine, you drink a glass of wine nightly or periodically with your dinner. You're very careful about how much you drink. You're careful about when you drink. You don't have pancreatitis. You don't have liver disease. You don't drink and drive. Is it possible that in addition to the pleasure you get from that wine, it's actually going to confer a health benefit related to cardiovascular disease and the answer is absolutely yes. You know, it's still associated with elevations of, of HDL cholesterol. Um, alcohol consumption at moderate levels is associated with a boost in something called endogenous TPA. And, you know, that may be a, a, a mouthful for the audience, but um, that's the very substance that was long used to clean out coronary arteries while people were having heart attacks. The body actually makes it and moderate alcohol intake boosts it. Uh, now, competing with that, there is a slight increase in, in cancer risk with alcohol intake, especially for women. So, you know, how does it all shake out? Well, you know, if you are, you're not at a particular risk for cancer, you're careful about how you drink alcohol, you maybe have a family history of heart disease, it's absolutely still possible that alcohol could confer a health benefit. On the other hand, if you have no cardiovascular risk factors or a woman with a history of breast cancer, more likely that it would impose some increased risk. When all is said and done, though, um, the, the latest studies haven't really changed what we thought we knew before. And where I land on the topic, David, is this. You know, first of all, if you drink, drink carefully, drink moderately, um, and, and drink alcohol, as I, I, I really appreciate good wine, uh, drink it for pleasure. Do not, don't turn to alcohol to promote your health. But on the other hand, if you drink it moderately, it's altogether possible it will make a small contribution to your health but it will definitely make a larger contribution to your pleasure um, mm -hmm. and I think pleasure is good for health too so you know drink it for the pleasure of it uh, but we haven't ruled out a small health benefit yeah well said well said let's talk about breakfast it used to be considered the most important meal of the day now we have this intermittent fasting diet which recommends we skip this meal are you a breakfast fan or do you feel we should have our first meal at noon uh well I guess both, because I kind of tend to have my first meal at noon, and it is breakfast. 
Um, right. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm not hungry first thing in the morning. Um, and this was always an issue for me because you know, I grew up in the era of you, you got to eat the minute your feet hit the floor or your eyeballs right. will catch fire. Or, you know, I don't know what we thought was going to happen, but, you know, I wasn't hungry. And, you know, it, it, it was just more comfortable for me to do my exercising in the morning and eat later. So, you know, I kind of felt vindicated when it became clear, hey, you know, there really was never all that much science about uh, eating breakfast first thing. What we now have, you know, I think is, is enough studies to say, do it however works for you. I mean, ultimately, you have to break your fast. Right. And when you break your fast, that's uh, breakfast. You know, that's where the name came from. It's the meal that breaks your fast. If it's at, you know, 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 11 a.m., noon, I don't think that really matters as long as it, it's comfortable for you. There, there were studies, these go back many decades, in basically indigent school children who wanted to have breakfast, but their families didn't have any food, who went to school hungry, and they, of course, performed a lot less well than kids who had breakfast. Well, you'd expect that if you're hungry and distracted. But, you know, for adults who have choices, if you don't feel like eating first thing in the morning, there's no reason why you should. In terms of weight, there are actually studies that show skipping breakfast may help with weight control because, you know, if you, if you kind of go out of your way to remove a meal from your day, you kind of create a hole in your calorie intake. And right. it makes sense that if you poke holes in your calorie intake, it's going to help with, with, with weight management. But then there was a recent study that showed actually, no, go the other way, have a big breakfast. And the idea there, pretty much the same thing. Shift your calories to earlier in the day and make up for it with a really small dinner. And so, you know, again, the things that happen in randomized trials may or may not translate to your life. What will translate to your life is looking across this range of options and deciding which of these feels right to you. Do you like to eat right. a big meal first thing in the morning? I mean, you know, some people that's just not going to work. If it does work to shift more of your calories early in the day, yeah, I think there are metabolic advantages to that. If you prefer to eat later, eat later. But what you want to do is find a pattern that really is comfortable, suits your routine, and allows you to achieve a healthy balance so that, you know, you fill up on the right number of calories every day. In my case, I'm, I'm a breakfast at noon guy for whatever, wherever that's worth. Right. Do you personally eat animal foods or do you follow a plant-based diet? Plant-based diet. Um, I'm not, I'm not a strict vegan. Uh, my diet, my, my wife is French mm -hmm. and our diets were always plant predominant. Um, but there's a little bit of dairy and, you know, just uh, she grew up in Southern France. So Mediterranean right. style diet, but a little bit of dairy and, and, and hanging on to that, you know, just kind of as a link to many of her family and, and culinary traditions. So we allow for that. And then I eat a little bit of fish and seafood, but less than I used to. I really like it. And I think mm -hmm. it's good for me. I just don't think it's so good for the fish. And, you know, as, as fisheries get depleted and, now I have to be really careful, uh, and, and we all do, about sustainability, and that limits our choices. And, and, you know, that's a simple fact of all this, David. We can talk about the range of dietary intakes that may be optimal for, for your health or mine or, or any given listener, but there are 8 billion hungry homo sapiens on the planet, and we really do have to think about what our dietary patterns do at scale, what we're doing to the land, what we're doing to the seas. So I was always plant predominant, 
I'm mm-hmm. now more plant predominant. Um, I, I haven't eaten mammals since I was a teenager. I had dogs. I loved horses. Uh, you know, I was just never comfortable with the notion that some of these guys are members of my family and others, others of these guys are for dinner. I, you know, I just, so that, that was a decision I made long before I knew much of anything about health or was all that concerned about the environment. And then I've made other adjustments over the years for those two reasons, both because of health and because of the environment. And where it lands me is in a place where I'm vegan much of the time, mm-hmm. but with some allowance for fish, seafood, and a little bit of dairy in my diet. Interesting. Yeah, we share a lot of similarities. With Gwenda, before we, we hit it, we got to talk about the immunity. I know that everyone's so worried about the immune system. Any tips that you can share with listeners? I know I go to the grocery store and I see all the healthy stuff available and all the junk people are hoarding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and, and so that's really a shame. I mean, particularly as the studies come out that, you know, Americans may be at, at higher risk for severe coronavirus infection because of our baseline health, uh, because of the prevalence of hypertension, coronary disease, diabetes, and obesity. And as you say, I mean, there's evidence that, that people are sort of loading up on so-called comfort food, which is, you know, sadly, mostly glow-in-the-dark Frankenfood, yeah, and, and um, yes, yeah, so it's a really important opportunity, David. Thank you to, to to make the point that you actually can influence your immunity very acutely. We actually um, we just did a webinar. Um, my my company, Diet ID, sponsors webinars on various topics in nutrition. We just did one on immunity, and we can maybe share that link so that you can yeah, you can push that because it was a fantastic discussion with with. Um, experts, you know, who took us deep into that content, but we can hit it at a very high level here. I mean, first, the overall quality of your diet matters mm-hmm. enormously to your health and enormously to your immune system function. So, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables, for example, provide the antioxidants that protect your cells. You can think of what the immune system needs to do to fight off a, a, a bad actor like SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Uh, kind of like chemical war, you know, you basically, you, know, you have to lob your, your, your armaments at the enemy. And like in any war, there's a risk of collateral damage. And, and in the case of the immune system, the innocent bystanders would be our healthy cells. So you, you want to be really good at, at, you know, the, the um, hostilities against the enemy, the, in this case, the virus, but you also be really good at protecting the, your own healthy cells. So the antioxidants are especially important for protecting healthy cells. Then you, you need to build the components of that army. You need white blood cells, you need lymphocytes, you need neutrophils, mm-hmm. you need antibodies, you need a whole bunch of chemicals that circulate in the bloodstream. So your diet is the construction material for all of that. So you need a healthy array of protein, you need a balance of fats, and and, and we can go really deep into this, but the, the bottom line is the same optimal diet of, you know, wholesome, whole foods, mostly plants, you know, in a sensible assembly is crucial to building these components of the immune system. And then there are a few rate limiting nutrients, and there may be arguments in each case for supplementation. Vitamin D is one. Zinc is another. Um, there are some arguments about uh, magnesium, selenium, uh, maybe B vitamins. If you do eat a vegan or, or plant predominant diet, B12, uh, mm-hmm. but a B complex might also be a good idea. Some, some of my colleagues simply recommend a multivitamin because, you know, why take chances? Um, at Diet ID, we actually would argue we can assess the nutrients you're getting from food and help you identify the specific gaps that you need to fill. But 
what, what people can take away from this is there's never been a better time to use diet to get healthy because, you know, it, it's always been good in terms of chronic health, but it actually can make a difference acutely in terms of infectious disease risk. And, you know, it, it, we have evidence, in particular vascular studies, as you know, David, endothelial function, for example, mm-hmm. that show that, you know, you're markedly changing your physiology in, in minutes to hours after a meal. You know, we're not talking about effects that take months. We're talking about today. And, you know, and certainly over a span of a few days or a couple of weeks, you can make a really big difference in terms of your hormonal balance, your inflammatory markers, your blood flow. And these are all critical components of how effectively your immune system can respond because every body system is dependent on every other body system. So I'd say there's a real opportunity here to to attend to health, both acute and chronic, uh, by optimizing your diet now. Fantastic. Great information. I want to thank you for joining us today. Today, it's always a pleasure having you on the show, and I'm a big fan of your work. Let me tell you, our writing styles are very similar. We use facts, analogies, humor, and sarcasm to get our point across. So hopefully everybody <laughs> listening will get a copy of How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. And you can get that by going to davidkatzmd.com. And while there, be sure and check out all the great resources that he has available, including health for articles, videos, audios, and health programs. You can follow Dr. Katz on Twitter and Facebook at Dr. Katz, MD, and you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Dr. David Friedman on Instagram. I'm at Dr. D. Friedman. If you heard Dr. Katz share something today that can benefit somebody you know, send them a link to this podcast available to yourgoodhealthradio.com or radiomd.com and check out our podcast library. Share these segments with friends, family, and coworkers, and on social media. Sharing is caring. You can also subscribe to future podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes. More to come. Stay tuned and stay Stay well.